every single brand, and I do a lot of work with companies today on linking up your personal purpose. Because I knew I was all about, mm-hmm. you know, my strengths was insights and creativity, and my passion was people empowerment. How can you link that to what, what the world needs and what your brand can stand for? Welcome to The Digest, the podcast where we get real about diversity and inclusion on the ground, looking at the stories and the journeys of activists and allies in the DNI space globally. My name is Helen Maguire. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Diversely. And I'll be talking to all sorts of characters from around the world about what they're doing in the DNI space and their journey to get there. Dahlia Feldheim is our next guest on the podcast, and I am super happy to finally have pinned her down and got her to talk to us about her experiences in gender and her support for women across the globe. She's now a best-selling author of a book called Dare to Lead Like a Girl. If you haven't read it, definitely pick it up. She's a TEDx speaker. If you haven't caught her TED talk, go and check it out. She's an ex-marketing genius, I would say, and she'll tell that story during our chat. And multiple founder, Dahlia is a real powerhouse where gender and supporting women is concerned. She really puts her money where her mouth is and you can hear her story on this podcast. So let's get on with it. Hello, Dahlia. How are you and where do we find you today? I am great and I'm now in Israel. Yeah. So just to give a little bit of context, Dalia and I met very briefly uh, when we were both in Singapore, actually at a Netflix event, quite randomly. You had come to speak. I'd been invited to be in the audience to listen. And I think I remember having a few tears at the end of your um, at the end of your speech because you just have such a kind of powerful story through what you've you've experienced yourself and of course what you created off the back of that. So maybe we should start at the very beginning. Tell me a little bit about your kind of background and, and history, and then we'll move through some of the remarkable stuff that you've uh, you've done in the meantime. So I actually uh, was a competitive gymnast. And I think that was the first thing that kind of shaped me to be who I am, because, uh, you know, it's all about building stamina. That was my kind of crash course, if you like, in stamina. And, you know, I did university, I did my degree in psychology and business. And I Kind of was sure that I will go into psychology, but then PNG came to recruit at the university, and everyone was like, "What? You're not going to PNG recruitment?" And I went, and I absolutely loved everything I heard. So I decided to apply, and I got in. Uh, so I started my career actually in 1998 in at Procter Gamble in Geneva. I came to my boyfriend then, and I'm like, "Oh, I got accepted to PNG." It's in Geneva. He was like, whoa, amazing skiing. Let's go. <laughs> and so we started a tour around the world. So I've been with PNG 17 years in Geneva, Moscow, and Singapore. And then in 2015, I left PNG uh, to take a role in a new company, another Fortune 500 company as CMO. And I've been there until 2018. And in short, in 2018, and we'll talk about it in a bit, I I got the epiphany that I uh, want to pivot my career to be closer to my purpose. And that's kind of empowering people, but especially women to be the best that they can be and bring more purpose and joy into the workplace. And that's what I do today. It certainly is. And talk to me a little bit about those kind of formative years of, of being a gymnast. I mean, that sounds pretty challenging as a space. It's generally quite a, a female dominated space, I, I would say. 
Well, I would say, I mean, not from there was the kind of the diversity element. I guess from there I got the kind of fearlessness that probably when I was eight, you know, was my biggest competition. I was on the national team and, you know, everyone was sure that I would kind of win. And just at the last kind of exercise, I got stuck in the rope, uh, lost half a point and came in second. And I remember my coach coming, screaming at me, how come I got stuck? And, you know, that never happened to me. And just as she was there, my mom literally came between us and she said, what are you talking about? You know, it's our first competition and she already came second. We're going to celebrate. Are you coming? And I guess, you know, looking back, that that experience kind of uh, shaped this notion that, you know, my competition is internal. It's about being the best that I can be, no matter the outcome. I just go, I do my best and, you know, and celebrate the outcome. And I think that you know, I always wanted my kids to be competitive gymnasts. It just gives you a, a level of, you know, both the resilience as well as the discipline, as well as the, you know, not being afraid of failure and realizing that, especially when you do, you know, competitive uh, gymnasts, it's the competition is internal. It's really, you know, and actually the best in the national kind of team were two of my colleagues that I was almost mentoring. So I think it also taught me a lot about kind of women empowerment and helping each other and the sisterhood that comes with support and enjoying the ride. I think that's kind of the key elements of, of that experience. Those are very big, powerful lessons to be learning at such a young age. And I, I guess also, as you say, um, those dynamics between women, as you say, your mum kind of stepping in between you and your your female coach at the time. Was your mum quite a, a big influence in your life when you were younger? Uh, yeah, both my mum and my dad, actually, they're very, very different. So my dad is this optimist. You know, my mum is the a little bit the warrior that always be prepared. So she's the planner. We always have post-it notes in the house and we plan <laughs> from her. I got the planning but also the, you know, achievement orientation, because she felt she could have been more than she, you know, was she, uh, you know, her mom divorced. And so she was determined to help me, you know, achieve anything I wanted to achieve. So she would literally, you know, being a gymnast, it's 5am going to competitions, they would drive me around. So she gave me both the, you know, the ability to do whatever I wanted to do, but also the confidence, you know, the hug, the love, uh, that everything is going to be okay. So that's kind of, you know, uh, my mom and then my dad, I'll never forget. I walked in on him once uh, when he was uh, teaching, you know, he he was a you know doctor for a metologist, but uh, later on in his second career, he was actually teaching a group. And as I came in, cause I was supposed, he was supposed to, I was supposed to drive home with him and the whole classroom was laughing. And, you know, I guess from him, I got the confidence of standing in front of an audience and making an impact and just the positivity gene because he is the glass half full and, you know, the work hard, you know, not, uh, not leave everything to chance, but overall, you know, things don't always happen for the best, but we can make the best from things that happen. That's kind of his approach to things. That is a great lesson, isn't it? And uh, yeah, I, I I can see both both sides of, of your parents and well, you know, no, knowing you, I suppose, as little as I do, but certainly in the things that you've created since. And, and so, you you know, you go through university, presumably have a pretty successful university career. Are you still in, in sports at this time? I was also very social. So right. when I, you know, at some stage, I think I was about 14 and I realized, you know, I was first and then second and then third. And then I dropped to below the six. Right. 
And then I realized that, you know, the efforts, you know, I'm just where I am and the, the, those other girls above me are just amazing because they're also my friends. So I decided to twist and I really missed the social interactions with my friends. I mean, the commitment as a uh, yeah. full-time sports person, you know, was taking its toll. So I decided actually p- to pivot and become a coach. And I, uh, you know, was actually training young girls uh, for competition. And that also was a defining moment because helping others succeed and, you know, building the confidence and building kind of the sense of, hey, you can do it. And I'm just here behind you. I think that was also a really important, you know, element. And I was coaching youth movements and uh, elements like that. So I think, you know, so those I since then, I've always been doing sports. I'm now a yoga teacher, actually. Just uh, maybe 10 years ago, I became a yoga teacher as a way to, I'm hyperactive. So it's a great way to be grounded, right? I have my little arm on my neck. So whenever I need to kind of, you know, wherever I touch it, I remind myself that, you know, to stay grounded. So yeah. I love, you know, I, I always believe that the best way to learn is to teach. So I actually became a training junkie uh, from the coach at the gymnastic to later on with PNG. PNG is a promotion from within company. So we very rarely bring external kind of speakers. You actually are encouraged to, as part of your build the organization, and I'll talk about it a little mm-hmm. bit later, but as part of that, you're encouraged to go to trainings to, you know, in order to teach. So I, I remember I was like every single activity, every single training that PNG did, I was actively kind of volunteering, hey, you know, from presentation skills to memo skills to, and two courses that actually will come into play a little bit later. You know, one was people development course that it's a funny story, but my first boss in the company kind of created this course for manager to leader. And before he left, I actually organized a whole week for him to come and do all his trainings, okay? People came back from maternity. He actually lives in Dubai, the great person, Jim. And I asked him if we can, you know, if I can shadow him and co-train with, train with him, the people development course. And he loved it and we did it together. And then I took it forward. And that became a very important kind of dimension in, what, in my second career. And another one that's kind of linked to uh, what I do today is a course called Women Supporting Women. And I guess... You know, that's where I, you know, that course was around creating the sense of comradeship and sisterhood in the workplace. And I became part of the staff, you know, in one of the first cohorts. And I just saw the magic when we support other women. And it was such a a great course that actually the global, we were running it for five years, I think. And then the global president of that course said, mm-hmm. You know, what's going on there? It seems to be really interesting. He joined, he loved it, and he decided to make it co-ed. And it's interesting, and it became people supporting people. And it was a great course. It was one of the best, very highly scored, but it kind of lost a little bit of its magic, right? And so when people ask me, should we have a women's only network? Mm. You know, I keep on saying, I always invite the the men as well, but there's something until we're completely equal, okay? And sadly, we're not there yet. I think this women supporting women 
you know, is a very important dynamic um, yeah. that we need to encourage in companies. So that's kind of where, you know. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's always good to have a perspective on that because I see so many people now saying, oh, of course, men are also invited. And and, and I get both sides. I, I'm sort of on the fence with this because, you know, unfortunately, the vast majority of decision makers are, are men. And if they're not involved with or aware of some of the challenges that, that might be present, it's difficult to get them on side and to get things to move along. Um, but equally, yeah. I get that the sort of the magic element and, and the force and the power of just being a group of women that is supporting each other and, and making those inroads independently in a way. I completely get both sides of that. And yeah, I wish I had a stronger view on one or the other, but as yet, I've not been I think proven you need both. right. I yeah. think you need both. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I, I'm a really strong believer and you'll see the book Dare to Lead Like a Girl yeah. is for men as much as it is for women. I'm very pro. I don't believe the the challenges that we have can be solved by, you know, only women or only men. So yeah. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm most of the training and most of the work that I do is co-ed. But there's also something to be said about creating this little safe mm. haven mm. that's conducted by the women's network. If any of the men find it interesting and want to join, actually, they got a lot of value of yeah. understanding. Uh, usually only 20% of the audience is men, and that's roughly the right, you know, so yeah. we feel how it feels to be, yeah. you know, 20% of leadership in most companies. So I think that's kind of where I'm ending up my recommendations to companies. Got it. Yeah, no, it's it's good to have that, to have those insights for sure. And Let's get into it a bit because, you know, we've kind of danced around the edges a bit of your journey in a wider sense and some of those inputs and probably influences on where you've kind of ended up for sure. But talk to us about some of those pivotal moments in, in P&G. So, I mean, both P&G and then after. So when, when we look at kind of career one, right, my 17 years in P&G, I think I call them my years of flow. Okay. Flow is kind of a term. Uh, coined by Mikai Chikmikai, or really when you're completely aligned with your purpose, okay? And it's sometimes called meditation in action. I very early on realized that my purpose is developing others. So as I told you, whether it was developing my own direct team, whether it was becoming a training junkie, whether it was some of the campaigns that I was able to develop. So, you know, my most well-known, I was very privileged to be part of the team that developed the Always Like a Girl campaign, that was a pivotal moment. You know, we basically wanted to challenge, you know, the term like a girl uh, mm. to mean to be proud to be who you are. And we show how when a young girl is asked what it means to run like a girl, she says, what do you mean? It means run as fast as you can, but something changes, right? During puberty and suddenly it becomes an insult. So we really wanted to turn things on the head and on its head. And, you know, for those who don't know the campaign, it probably... You know, it became the iconic for purpose-led brand building. I think it has 250 million views till mm. today. It was mm. the first one to be featured on the Super Bowl. You know, I recently Forbes chose it as one of the most influential influential campaigns of the decade. But I can tell you, you know, for me, as a mom of three, I remember seeing it for the first time. And I was like literally tearing up because yeah. what? this is everything that I worked for yeah. is about creating value and impact. And even as a marketeer, I can create value and impact. I, I remember I came home, I showed it to my eldest. She kind of got really emotional about, but the most, you know, 
exciting thing, if you like, five years later, after the campaign first aired, my youngest called me from school all excited. Mom, you won't believe it. They're showing you an ad in social studies. So that was a pivotal moment. On on so many levels. And this is, I think, where the tears happened when I was at Netflix and and you put that ad up on the big screen. And there was just a collective kind of sigh at the end of that of that advert it's quite poetic it is a beautiful piece of work it is pretty phenomenal it's hard to describe it as an advert it's much more of a an important message really so it's something that you know I know that you are incredibly proud of that you talk about a lot when you speak what was the impact of that on your career once that had kind of done its work I don't like taking too much credit for always like a girl because it's really there's a lot of work that came before Mm. that You know, I was one of four global marketing directors. So the credit comes to the agency, right? We gave them the brief. But I'll maybe go back and tell you a little bit about another story before that, right? That for me kind of shaped this notion that I'm not in the business of selling pads. I'm in the business of women empowerment. And I don't know if I ever shared that in Netflix. I can't remember. It was way back. But uh, You know, when I just moved to Singapore, it was 2011 and we went to do in-home visits in India. And I remember walking into that middle-class house and I love the women of India. I was at always them, you know, from the very first moment, I still remember driving in the outskirts of Mumbai when I just arrived and this young girl was reading a book, but she didn't have any electricity. So she was really literally reading to the lights of passing Mm. cars, right? And that stuck in my mind as you know, the wow, the commitment of women to succeed against all odds. Well, anyway, that morning I we were doing in-home visits and I walk in and I see the girl that we were about to speak with sitting on the floor and her mom came in with drinks and she served us in nice kind of China plates. And then she bent over and she offered her on the floor. And, you know, I noticed the wall she was sitting against was kind of the color was faded as if she sits there quite often. And Towards the end of the interview, aunts and uncles came in. And when her uncle came in for a moment, I I noticed this sad, embarrassed look on her face, right? And I was kind of wondering what's going on here. So when we left, I asked my agency, well, what was that all about? And she said to me, well, Dahlia, she's on her period. And I said, well, so what? And that's when she told me, right? Women on her period in India are considered impure. So they don't sit with us. They don't eat with us. And often they sit on the floor. They don't go to school. Talk about equality when, you know, girls miss a week or a mm. week of months, right? And then as a joke, she kind of said, hey, we even believe if they touch a pickle, the pickles will go uh, rotten. So they're not allowed to touch pickles on their period. And kind of she was going on on these different kind of myths. And she said, yeah, it had a good origin. But now, you know, it's ridiculous that women feel less behind. And now I can tell you, and I talk about this example quite a lot because, um, You know, that was just anecdotal, right? I was there as a marketing director of Femcare, but I couldn't sleep. I just had a sad look and I said, you know, we have an opportunity. We're all about women protection, but how can we elevate that? And, you know, into more of a women empowerment kind of position, because when you do have the confidence of having the the best feminine protection, you know, you're unstoppable, right? So that was kind of the, the notion. And I called them the next morning and I said, listen, you know, I couldn't sleep. She said, yeah, me too. And I said, you know, I'm a foreigner, but can we do something about it? Can we use our brand voice to tackle, you know, uh, these these myths? 
Now, you know, she loved the idea and we took quite a risk because it's societal, right? So we yeah. decided to use humor. And 10 months later, we launched a campaign. We called it, I did, I touched the pickle. Okay. So the campaign in short is called Touch the Pickle. And it's all about a girl that, you know, did and wore white and went to school and touched the pickle. And, you know, her grandma is cheering for her. And I can tell you, you know, at that moment, you know, when we got all the calls and it started a conversation in India about women empowerment way before Me Too. And there were TED Talks about it. There were girls kind of rioting. And it really made me realize I'm not in the business of selling pads. I'm in the business of women empowerment, right? And I think every single brand, and I do a lot of work with companies today on linking up your personal purpose. Because I knew I was all about, you know, my strengths was insights and creativity and my passion was people empowerment. How can you link that to what, what the world needs and what your brands can stand for? You know, it does need to, your your brand benefit needs to connect to your purpose. You can't kind of come from left field because otherwise you'll see an amazing advertising, but you will not remember what it's for. But how can you as a brand make an impact in the world? And sadly, we have a lot of things to tackle and, you know, think about how you evolve your brand benefit to be more of a life benefit. And and that's kind of what drove me. And that's where I came back to the global team, you know, in parallel, there was some other work, amazing work done in Africa. And we said, we need to do something, you know, more meaningful. And, you know, that's where the brief uh, came and uh, like a girl came. So I think the whole pivotal moment was throughout my career when I realized that every little thing that we say or do we have a voice. We all have a voice. A brand has a voice. A person has a voice. And if you have the knowledge, the insight, you know, you're required to share it to make an impact, you know, and even if it's just one person that needed to hear that specific message to make a decision, you know, then you need to do it. That kind of led me a little bit to kind of sharing my voice. I used to have a, a fear, if you are, we all have, right? Fear, fear of failure, but also fear of success. In my case, it was linked to fear of jealousy. And I, you know, writing the book, speaking on TED, right? I had to really overcome that and say to myself, you know, if that message is relevant to help one person, who are you to not be sharing it? So that's kind of, you know, Marianne Williamson talks, she has a beautiful quote, right? Your who are you, right, uh, to deprive others of the right to hear kind of your gifts? So that kind of helped me with Is, that. I mean, what what a fascinating journey! I, I think you know it's remarkable that you mentioned the the touch the pickle campaign. Maybe those outside kind of the Middle East uh, and and Asia wouldn't know about this advert. I actually know it really well because I, I worked in advertising for four years in Dubai for a very large global advertising business, and it was used over and over and over again as an example of what a campaign should be and how we should think about advertising campaigns. So proud. And I know a lot of, it started really this journey on purpose-led brand building. Yeah. Yeah. The load for Marielle came later and a lot of kind of, you know, amazing pieces of work that, yes, they talked about the benefit and yes, they built the brand, 
Okay, but they also did something bigger and they built the brand because they built a loyalty and a sense of commitment to the brand. So exactly. It becomes bigger than the brand. It becomes bigger than the message. It becomes something that people take on themselves as a as a purpose. And it breaks taboos. You know, as you say, you use humor in in that advert. For those of you who've not seen it, look it up. It's definitely worth a watch. The same as the Always Like a Girl campaign. And, you know, huge round of applause. Having come from that that background, I, I know how hard it is to create campaigns like that that really cut through but I think you know what really comes through when you're speaking is as you say that alignment between your own purpose your own background your own vision for your future and overcoming some of your own fears to succeed in in you know in that world that's not easy I mean it is it is still a very kind of male-led industry yeah I mean I think For me, doing things like a girl was never a challenge. I was lucky to have, you know, grown in P&G. P&G is very much a take care of your people and the business takes care of itself. I mentioned Jim, my first boss. Mm. They say the biggest, you know, predictor of success is your first boss. And I can definitely say, you know, I I was really lucky to have bosses that believed in me sometimes more than I believed in myself in the early kind of formative years. It wasn't the same at the end, and that kind of pushed me to do. You know, to yeah, like so let's talk about that because, as you say, you had seventeen very happy years at, at P and G, a number of huge successes, as as well as all the work that you did, sort of personally and for your teams and so on. But the next pivotal moment, I suppose, isn't such a positive one, or at least not at the beginning. <laughs> well, you know, in P and G, you not all bosses were amazing, right? So I think it's really important to establish, in my view. Conflict is not a bad thing per se. You know, a conflict is an opportunity for connection because if you are having some conflict, it's because something is important for you. So I was always, I had the reputation of really being good in managing up. I really took it as a project. Every new manager for him or her to get to know me as a person. I always did a very robust expectation alignment. I have a whole chapter in my book about you know, expectation alignment. I really believe that's an important element for you to understand what makes me tick, what makes you tick, what's your expectation, Mm -hmm. what mine. So I had this kind of maybe confidence that I relationship is really important for me and relationship. I always say ROI is not return on investment. It's return on interaction. And I, I invested a lot in those interactions. So even if I had bosses that were a little bit more challenging, you know, I was working hard, you know, I was driving results and then I spent a lot in creating the, that relationship. But I did grow up kind of um, in this a little bit more protected world of PNG because the culture was very good to people. After 17 years, I did leave PNG. Basically, they wanted me back in Geneva. My husband opened a high tech company in Singapore. It was the right time for me to take on a new challenge. And I became CMO of another Fortune 500 company. Now, it doesn't matter the company, but it was a great company. I interviewed. I love the global CEO. I love the global CMO. It felt like a dream job. I was head of marketing, 150. I was to recruit. It was a really small department, but I was to recruit 150 people, you know, lead all the the brand strategy, etc. So it seemed like a dream job, right? Or so I thought. (laughs) Because a month into the role, I I basically got a new boss and that was kind of the local CEO uh, in Asia. And him and I just couldn't be more different. Mm. And, you know, you talk about kind of a challenge and I'm okay with challenges, but this was like 
the two extremes. Yeah. So I was all about, you know, the passion and the creativity and the people. And he was all about numbers and scorecard and ROI, very, very left brain. You know, most days the culture felt like ROI or you die, right? <laughs> we joke about that. But very early on and you know, I think one of my first meetings, I was trying to do an expectation alignment, but he basically turned around and said, listen, I'm not going to share what you're good at because I find it a total waste of time. I'm only going to focus on what you need to fix. And kind of, I was like, okay. And then he kind of, and you love that. He was like, oh, and marketing, I see you're all this kind of passion and creativity. Well, I don't believe there's any art in marketing. It's only science. You just didn't get it yet, Right. And for anyone in marketing, it's like a stab to the heart. Mm, mm. Anyway, it was very clear for me that this was kind of a a match made in hell. But, uh, you know, uh, I work hard. You know, I put myself down uh, to it, you know, created the team. One day he summoned me into the office and basically he started giving me feedback. Now we love feedback. Okay. And I remember, you know, my first boss that I spoke about in gym, You know, he was also very direct. We used to call it tough love. Okay. Mm -hmm. And with him, I had actually the experience once, you know, very early on that I was in his office. So my first boss, right. So I'm going back 20 years. I was in his office because one of my launches hit a wall and I was just getting so angry and frustrated that a tear appeared in my eyes. And, And Jim, my first boss kind of looked me in the eye and he said something, you know, I'll always remember. He said, never be embarrassed for crying in the office again. It's a sign of your passion and passion is your superpower. And I remember he added, and if you work for someone that doesn't understand it, you need to walk away. They don't appreciate you. They don't deserve you. Right. And that kind of was a notion that I had. So fast forward this 20 years, right? So I'm summoned into my new boss. Okay. My challenging boss. And he gives me feedback. Now I'm used to tough love feedback, right? Be make it direct, make it honest, but a feedback that comes from a position of care. There was no love that day in the room, zero. It was just really denigrating, humiliating, belittling feedback. And I remember sitting there, Helen, and I was like, okay, I'm a C-suite woman, right? One of the only women on the team. I'm holding it in, right? This guy is totally, you know, going to extremes, but, uh, you know, I'm holding it. And then he moved to kind of insult my team. And that's where I became a lioness. And for a moment, a tear, it didn't even roll down the cheek, mm. it my eye. And it, it's almost like he was waiting for it and he smiled and he offered me a box of tissues. And, you know, I remember that first experience I had with yep. Jim and I had all this warm, fuzzy feeling. And then I raised my eyes and I noticed something weird about his smile. And he turned around that tissue box and I talk about it, you know, Helen, on the other side of that tissue box, he prepared a handmade sticker that basically read Dahlia's tissue box. Oh my goodness. So he was kind of already, and I, I'll never forget, I gave a, a talk for like 7,000 people in uh, in Facebook and the looks of all of them were like similar. It was like, oh, that was my reaction as well. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is like HR assaults, right? To which he kind of leaned back in his chair and he said, oh, Dahlia, stop being so emotional. It's just boy banter. I know you have a sense of humor. Now, the interesting thing here, and I think it's really important that, you know, in PNG, I I was full of confidence. I was the head of the women's network. 
I myself uh, helped women fire people for misconduct. But somehow when this bullying was directed at Mm. me, I almost had this cognitive dissonance. I can't be a, you know, a victim of, of bullying. So I never even admitted to myself that this is the, the bullying relationship. I was just, okay, you know, a fast first year was kind of fight. Let's see how I can change him, how I can coach him. I gave him feedback very openly, very kind of caring. Uh, and I very quickly learned you can't change someone that doesn't want to change, right? So second year, I was all about, okay, fight or flight. So I just decided to avoid conflict, right? He can say whatever he wants. I let it roll. I just focused on doing my work. And that year, our scorecard was amazing, but I felt physically sick, right? Because I I realized that I left my heart yeah. and my heart at the doorway and I wasn't being my full self. I wasn't, you know, my strengths were suddenly not only not appreciated, but they were denigrated. I was kind of too good with my people. I was so creative that where's my process? You know, he jokingly even said that I'm too positive. He used to call me Miss Kumbaya. And that was all a negative. So everything that worked for me for 17 years simply didn't. And I was determined. I'm not a quitter, right? I told you I was a gymnast. So I, you know, was determined to stay there for three years. And I think that's kind of another revelation that, you know, towards the end, what kind of saved me in a way is that I went to a PNG alumni. Okay. So my previous company. And I walked in and I heard all the leaders talking about servant leadership and culture. And I realized I became a frog in boiling water and I needed to leave. Right. But I didn't want to leave before delivering everything because I'm very result driven, everything I committed and, you know, he wanted science and I was determined to bring back my heart and my art. And we created this campaign that was very data-driven, but also very creative. And that won an Effie award. And I realized I got back my mojo and I could leave, leave with my head held high. Yeah. But I keep saying, you know, if it happened to me, it really can happen to everyone, anyone. And, you know, when I left, I said to myself, oh my God, what a waste of human potential. Same person. This company, PNG, I was top rated 17 years. I delivered the moon. I worked 200%. I was on fire because I was in flow. And then this second career, they thought I delivered, but I believed I gave them 10% of my ability because I was constantly, you know, busy defending myself. Every email I had to double check mm-hmm. because I knew I would be kind of bullied or it or looked 10 times or something. So anyway, so I realized that kind of it's such a shame and I decided to go yeah. and study. Yeah. And I get, we talk about pivotal moments, right? Yeah. And I share this story a lot, even though it's very painful. And the first time I share it, I was, you know, shaking all through A, because, you know, what happens if he hears, but then I realized it's not about him. It's not about me. It's about making sure that this doesn't happen to anyone ever again. And I think uh, what reassured me when, you know, I gave the TED Talk back in 2019 for the first time talking about a little bit about that, I got a lot of calls from women that decided to take action from men, you know, but one guy called me from Australia and he told me, Dalia, I realized I saw your TED Talk. I realized I'm a bully. What do I do? <laughs> right. So I realized the importance of kind of sharing our yeah. story. And sharing our experience, because when I 
When I left, I decided to study. I studied organizational psychology and I realized that what happened to me was sadly way too prevalent in the business world today. I mean, one in two experience bullying and 87% are unhappy in the workplace. One in four experience acute work-related anxiety. We know we're seeing that. I mean, that was before COVID and we're seeing it with COVID, right? The great resignation, even worse, the silent resignation. And we're seeing now the great breakup which is the women are leaving in spades because a company that is not focused on mental health, DNI, you know, is not going to succeed the days of command and control or bullying you into fear, into action or long gone. These models are just archaic. They're not relevant for the business world today. Yeah, absolutely. It's such an insightful, almost kind of A-B experiment to, you know, to put it in data terms, because you're the same person. You also arguably have 17 years worth of confidence and experience and, you know, successes and all of those things behind you. You would think that, as you say, there is no possible way at that level you could ever be subjected to something like that. And yet within a short space of a couple of years, you were 90%, as you say, less than than where you'd started in your own. That's incredible, right? One person, right? And and, and that's the the whole notion. The company was great, right? One person can really bring down your culture. And the interesting point is then as a scientist, you know, as organizational psychologist, we studied it. Even when that person leaves the company, toxicity stays in the culture for at least three to five years, Mm. right? So companies need to be spending all the effort. We cannot allow. I mean, my my research kind of thesis was, can you coach yourself out of a toxic environment? Okay, because I'm a self from the gymnast, right? I'm stomach. It's all, you know, I developed myself, right? So I said to myself, and I tried everything I possibly knew to work. And I realized that, yes, you can build resilience. And that's what I did, right? Leaning into my team and developing the team and purpose and doing work that is important. And I did everything that I knew from before could work. But I realized when it comes to really toxic environment, there really is only one strategy that works and that's zero tolerance. And I think that's what I didn't do as well. Mm. And that's what I'm advocating today. Zero tolerance looks like I'm sorry, but you're not going to speak to me like that. I'm going to leave and let's have this conversation when you're ready to speak with me, to, to deal with it, with to speak to me with respect, right? Yeah. Or, you know, literally kind of not, not being in the defensive uh, role at all. I think we talk about Rashi Sota and Nilima, but they wrote a book, uh, Shakti Leadership. And I like to use an analogy that they use, right? They talk about the masculine and the feminine energy. So we have within us both feminine and masculine energy. The positive feminine is the gathering, the teamwork, the intuition, right? The positive masculine is direction and logic. And we as leaders do need to rotate an assertiveness. We do need to rotate between Mm. the two. Assertiveness was another one that you know, I was with the empathy and I should have stepped into the more assertive. Now, the issue today is that the business world collapsed in what they call wounded masculinity. Wounded masculinity is power over people versus power with people. Mm. And many women either fall into that wounded masculinity, believing that they need to behave, you know, aggressively. 
yeah. but aggressively in order yeah. to succeed. Okay. And hence we get sometimes this dynamic of, you know, the bitchy boss, etc. Mm-hmm. Or they would fall sometimes when the environment is very toxic, they could fall into the wounded femininity, which is around defensiveness, which is around, you know, wanting to please, maybe getting into burnout because we carry all the heart jobs, mm-hmm. you know, that are not appreciated. And in some way, despite me being a very kind of positive, you know, I'm not a pushover and I can step into my assertive, but in that specific case, right? I didn't, I fell into my wounded femininity. And I think that's another important, uh, Muhammad Ali says, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, right? Sometimes we, you know, need to be in our empathy, but sometimes we need to step into that assertiveness and put boundaries. And I think that was my biggest learning. And I tried to summarize in my my book, all the learnings of what worked in PNG, Okay. And I called the book Dare to Lead Like a Girl. It's both a homage for the Always Like a Girl campaign, but it's all about basically leading from the heart. It's leading from what I've seen work in PNG and what I've seen in that, you know, second company for that doesn't work. And some of them is women tend to have more than men. And some of them are things that we also could learn like boundaries. Yeah. And as I obviously people can't see kind of what I'm seeing, but you have your book behind you and the the kind of subtitle of that is how to survive and thrive in the corporate jungle. And it is a jungle. You know, I've worked in the corporate world for the majority of my career and I've always found it very, very difficult to do that managing up piece, to not fall into what you call a or, or what is termed uh, wounded femininity. I, I completely recognize that as well and then not to kind of flip the other way into something that looks too aggressive. It's a very, very fine line to tread. I guess, you know, just to just to kind of round off where, where we're at at the moment, what are kind of a few tips that you would give to women who are facing these types of issues right now? You know, maybe a couple of sort of headlines from the book. So, okay, I call the, the book, What Does It Mean to Lead Like a Girl? I called it the five P's of leading from the heart, okay? And coming from marketing, right? It's easy for us to remember. (laughs) So the first P is really purpose. Purpose is really that desire to be in a state of flow, which happens when you're aligned to your strengths and your passion areas. So the first tip, you know, when I reflect back, my strengths weren't appreciated, right? So I kind of forgot about them. And I focus in on trying to fix everything that, you know, someone else thought I need to yeah. fix. So the first tip for me, and we know it from research, right? When we are focusing on our strengths every single day, we have two times the likelihood to succeed. Our strengths strengthen us. So yes, you can neutralize your weaknesses by training or by recruiting someone that compensates you, mm-hmm. but your strengths is makes you who you are. So if you don't feel like you're bringing your strengths to work every single day, you should have a discussion with your manager and try and change it. And if you can't, that's not the right place for you. Yeah. So that's the first thing, the, the first purpose that comes from strengths. The second is really this perspective. It's sometimes easier said than done, but it's stepping out of the drama so you can enjoy the movie. Okay. And, you know, when you're in it and it's pounding on your head, it's only when I stepped out, when I went to the PNG convention that I said to myself, mm-hmm. oh my God, I'm in a toxic environment. So how do you create that perspective in your life? How do you create that growth mindset that really kind of not, not reacting emotionally, but stepping back to have that perspective? So that will be the second. 
The third is one that maybe we don't do as well, but I call it power up. And power up is all the physical aspects because when we are in a state of stress, we tend to sacrifice the things that are most important in giving us energy. Okay, whether we are not eating well or sleeping well or exercising well. And, you know, that is really a first kind of because we don't have energy to deal with this toxic environment. So self-care is so important. It's not selfish. It's self-full. And as women, sometimes we have a tendency to kind of, you know, get to burnout because where we neglect that important, you can't pour from an empty jug. So taking the time out to say, hey, you know, something's not working. I need the mental perspective and I need the physical perspective and the digital detox, right? So that would be the third. The fourth and maybe the most important one for me is people. And it's not just for me, it's proven. The number one secret for happiness at work is your relationships at work. And I was always really good at relationship. But when I came into a toxic and, you know, he was a very good in divide and conquer, I didn't find my support network. I didn't make enough of an effort to go externally to find it. I didn't find it from within. I was working so hard. I would skip lunch, right? And Singaporeans said the most important meeting of the day is lunch. So relationship, right, are so important. And you need to make that extra effort to do whatever you need on building that relationship. And so that was kind of the fourth. And then the fifth is the fifth P is positivity. And positivity is not about being happy, happy all the time. Positivity is about, you know, giving yourself the permission to be human. It's about, you know, the gratitude. It's about also the, you know, the courage. And I think a very important, and I'll just end off with that. Courage, you know, I call the book Dare to Lead Like a Girl. And, you know, I heard Paul Polman, who's the uh, ex-CEO of Unilever, who actually gave me a record for the book. And he was speaking about kind of courage is probably the most misunderstood word. People believe it to mean making decisions that others don't, right? But courage actually comes from the French word cœur, which means heart. Because the real courage comes when you choose to listen to your heart. And it doesn't mean that you don't have fears. We all have fears. So I think that's another important tip, the imposter syndrome, fear of success, fear of failure. You know, chapter five, I share all my fears very openly. (laughs) We all have the fears, right? But courage is having those fears and moving ahead anyway. Trust in your superpowers, right? Trust in your heart and then, you know, stepping ahead. So I think that would be my fifth kind of uh, tip, which is just this dear, this courage to listen to your heart. I haven't read the book in full. I've started reading it and I haven't got to the the fifth yet, but I think I certainly have taken an awful lot away from, from our conversation, particularly that last part. And I haven't got to the part where you talk about all of your fears yet. So I'm going to tick them off and see how many I also have. But Dali, it's been such a pleasure to understand a little bit more deeply all of the successes and your story behind those successes. And of course, the challenges as well that you face and how you've overcome those. I suppose final question for you is, is what's next? I mean, the TED talk has gone nuts. The the book has gone nuts. What's next for you? So, you know, I just love training and coaching and seeing transformation. So I do work with companies. I have a whole year long from manager to leader because I do believe that we, the change needs to come from the leaders 
right? And the young leaders, as they become, we need to understand that being a manager and being a leader is very different. So that's kind of the, my main focus for the next few years is really to transform that. I created also a game. The company is called Happiness, Up Your Game at Work, which is an online game because the best way to learn is to teach and the second mm. best way is play. And we we don't have enough play in the corporate world. Mm-hmm. So it's a game that encourages a leader, you know, encourages us to solve our daily challenges using tools from the world of positive psychology. So, you know, for me, the sadly, my job is cut out. Uh, sadly, we're seeing, you know, even if it was true in 2019 when I gave my first TED, mm-hmm. it's even more true today. So that would be kind of the, the next step, you know, yeah. continuing to do that and uh, help individual and companies, you know, bring more of this purpose and joy to the workplace because you transform one person, you transform the world. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such important work at kind of ground level and groundbreaking work as well, knowing what you do. How can people reach out to you? How can they find you? How can they find out more about what you're up to? Yeah, so I kind of put my whole heart in the book. So you're now holding a piece of my heart. (laughs) So I would love to hear when you finish it what you thought. But yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn primarily. Uh, so do feel free to connect. It's Dalia Feldheim or daliafeldheim.com um, where there's also all the links for the book and all the my, my training programs. And yeah, feel free to reach out. I love to stay in touch. I love to see the small, oh, I heard you and I decided to make this decision. And, you know, because that's how we spread these little ripples. And I would say, you know, I'll just end off by saying, we have immense kind of power in supporting each other. So I think this notion of lift others as you rise is so critically important. When we give, we get, and we all grow as a society. Thank you, Dahlia. It's been so insightful and just such a joy, really, to hear you speak and explore your journey. And as Dahlia said, you can find her on LinkedIn. You can find her on her website. Everything will be in the show notes. Um, So please reach out and... uh, Let's see where this goes. Thank you so much, Helen. And lovely since Netflix a few years ago to today, you see. So the ripples are continuing. There we go. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much. And I'll speak to you yeah. soon. Take Thank care. I think that conversation just absolutely speaks for itself. I don't think there's many people in the world who've put themselves on the front line as much as Dahlia has in many, many different respects. She really has made a huge difference to so many women's lives through her work in marketing, of course, and advertising, but now through her much more hands-on approach to gender inequality and all the work she's doing through her consultancies, through her books, through her talks. If you haven't checked out any of those, then please check the show notes and connect with Dahlia. Have a look at all the work that she's doing and check out her book, obviously. Thank you so much to Dahlia and thank you to you for listening. As always, we'd love to hear from you if you are a change agent in the DNI space, if you have a story to tell yourself and you're now making a difference where DNI is concerned, we would love to explore your story. Get in touch, look me up on LinkedIn. I'm Helen Maguire or indeed just hit me up, Helen at diversely.io and head over to Diversely for a ton of resources in the DNI space, guides, tools, diagnostics, blogs, articles, and perspectives. It's all there. Check it out and I'll catch you next time. See ya.